three. When he came to, he was already sitting up. It was a curious sensation. He'd awoken before from blackness brought on by injuries and by drugs, but this was different. It was as though someone had simply set the mechanisms of his consciousness moving again, like a scholar opening the spigot on a Ferrari water clock. He was in the common room of a tavern, seated on a chair at a table by himself. He could see the bar and the hearth and the other tables, but the place was dank and empty, smelling of mould and dust. A flickering orange light came from behind him, an oil lantern. The windows were greasy and misted over, turning the light back upon itself. He couldn't see anything of the outside through them. There's a crossbow at your back, said a voice just a few feet behind him, a pleasantly cultured man's voice, definitely Komori, but somewhat off in a few of the pronunciations. A native who'd spent time elsewhere? The voice was entirely unknown to him. Master Thorn. Icicles seemed to grow in Locke's spine. He racked his brains furiously for recall of those last few seconds in the park. Hadn't one of the men there called him that as well? He gulped. Why do you call me that? My name is Lucas Fairwhite. I'm a citizen of Emberlane, working for the house of Bel Oster. I could believe that, Master Thorn. Your accent is convincing, and your willingness to suffer that black wool is nothing short of heroic. Don Lorenzo and Doña Sofia certainly believed in Lucas Fairwhite, until you yourself disabused them of the notion. It isn't Barsavi, Locke thought desperately. It couldn't be Barsavi. Barsavi would be conducting this conversation himself, if he knew. He would be conducting it at the heart of the floating grave, with every gentleman bastard tied to a post and every knife in sage kindness bag sharpened and gleaming. My name is Lucas Fairwhite, Locke insisted. I don't understand what you want or what I'm doing here. Have you done anything to Grauman? Is he safe? Jean Tannen is perfectly safe, said the man, as you well know. How I would have loved to see it up close when you strolled into Don Salvara's office with that silly sigil wallet under your black cloak, destroying his confidence in Lucas Fairwhite, just as a father gently tells his children there's really no such thing as the blessed bringer. You're an artist, Master Thorn. I've already told you my name is Lucas, Lucas Fairwhite, and... If you tell me that your name is Lucas Fairwhite one more time, I'm going to put a bolt through the back of your upper left arm. I wouldn't mean to kill you just to complicate your life. A nice big hole, maybe a broken bone. Ruin that fine suit of yours, perhaps get blood all over that lovely parchment. Wouldn't the clerks at Maraggio's love to hear an explanation for that? Promissory notes are so much more attention-getting when they're covered in gore. Locke said nothing for quite a long while. Now that won't do either, Locke. Surely you must have realized I can't be one of Barsavi's men. Thirteen, Locke thought. Where the hell did I make a mistake? If the man was speaking truthfully, 
If he didn't work for Kappa Barsavi, there was only one other possibility. The real spider. The real midnighters. Had Locke's use of the pretend sigil wallet been reported? Had that counterfeiter in Talisham decided to try for a bit of extra profit by dropping a word with the Duke's secret constables? It seemed the likeliest explanation. Turn around. Slowly. Locke stood up and did so, and bit his tongue to avoid crying out in surprise. The man seated at the table before him could have been anywhere between thirty and fifty. He was lean and rangy and grey at the temples. The mark of Camor was upon his face. He bore the sun-darkened olive skin, the high temples and cheekbones, the sharp nose. He wore a grey leather doublet over a grey silk tunic. His cloak and mantle were grey, as was the hood that was swept back behind his head. His hands, folded neatly before him, were covered with thin grey swordsman's gloves, kid leather that was weathered and creased with use. The man had hunter's eyes, cold and steady and measuring. The orange light of the lantern was reflected in their dark pupils. For a second it seemed to Locke that he was seeing not a reflection but a revelation, that the dark fire burned behind the man's eyes. Locke shivered despite himself. All that grey. You, he whispered, dropping the accent of Lucas Fairwhite. None other, said the grey king. I disdain these clothes as something of a theatrical touch, but it's a necessary one. Of all the men in Camor, surely you understand these things, Master Thorn. I have no idea why you keep calling me that said Locke, shifting his footing as unobtrusively as he could, feeling the comforting weight of his second stiletto in the other sleeve of his coat. And I don't see this crossbow you mentioned. I said it was at your back. The Grey King gestured at the far wall with a thin, bemused smile. Warily Locke turned his head. There was a man standing against the wall of the tavern, standing right in the spot Locke had been staring at until the previous moment. A cloaked and hooded man, broad-shouldered, leaning lazily against the wall with a loaded alley piece in the crook of his arm. The quarrel pointed casually at Locke's chest. I... Locke turned back, but the Grey King was no longer seated at the table. He was standing a dozen feet away, to Locke's left, behind the disused bar. The lantern on the table hadn't moved, and Locke could see that the man was grinning. This isn't possible. Of course it is, Master Thorn. Think it through. The number of possibilities is actually vanishingly small. The Grey King waved his left hand in an arc, as though wiping a window. Locke glanced back at the wall and saw that the crossbowman had disappeared once again. Well, fuck me, said Locke. You're a bonds mage. No, said the Grey King. I'm a man without that advantage. No different than yourself. But I employ a bonds mage. He pointed to the table where he'd previously been sitting. There, without any sudden movement or jump in Locke's perception, sat a slender man, surely not yet out of his twenties. His chin and cheeks were peach-fuzzed, 
and his hairline was already in rapid retreat to the back of his head. His eyes were alight with amusement, and Locke immediately saw in him the sort of casual presumption of authority that most congenital blue bloods wore like a second skin. He was dressed in an extremely well-tailored grey coat with flaring red silk cuffs. The bare skin of his left wrist bore three tattooed black lines. On his right hand was a heavy leather gauntlet, and perched atop this, staring at Locke as though he were nothing more than a field mouse with delusions of grandeur, was the fiercest hunting hawk Locke had ever seen. The bird of prey stared directly at him its eyes pinpoints of black within gold on either side of a curved beak that looked dagger-sharp. Its brown and grey wings were folded back sleekly, and its talons—what was wrong with its talons? Its rear claws were huge, distended, oddly lengthened. "'My associate, the falconer,' said the grey king, "'a bondsmage of Carthane.' My bondsmage, the key to a great many things. And now that we've been introduced, let us speak of what I expect you to do for me.